So as we've been going through Matthew, I've been trying to give you sort of an overview, a kind of a framework to understand the gospel as we go through it and what Matthew is communicating. And, and, what I, and I believe Matthew is really trying to give us this same framework in order to understand the Christian life. And he's doing that, believe it or not, uh, the framework is established on Jesus Christ. Who knew that would be what it would be? And here, here's how I frame what, what I think Matthew's doing and, and hopefully provide structure that makes this gospel accessible and makes it clear to you so you can kind of follow through all these chapters and, and put them in context. And so Matthew opens up by talking about the king and his kingdom in chapters 1 to 4. And, and we talked a whole bunch about chapters 1 to 4. And so the, the king has come and his inbreaking kingdom. There is a new kingdom that is at hand. It's right there. Repent and be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. The king in the line of David has arrived and his kingdom has come. Then Jesus begins to preach. And he preaches on how kingdom citizens are recognized. And that's the beatitude. And he says, this is what favored members of the kingdom look like. This is what favored children of God look like. You'll recognize them by these things, merciful and, and humble and all these other things, and um, poor in spirit. And then he says, this is how kingdom people will engage with the world. He says, you're going to be salt and light. You're going to be so different from the world. You're going to be aliens in a strange land. You're going to be foreigners. You're going to be like light in darkness. You're going to be like salt in the earth. There's no way you're going to blend in. And you're going to interact with the world in a way that's beneficial to them. And that's how kingdom people engage with the world. And now, as we get into sort of the meat and the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about how kingdom people now behave. You're now part of this new kingdom. You interact, you're recognized this way. You interact with other kingdoms in this way. And now this is how people in this kingdom, in this country, in this nation of God, are to act. And so you get basically Jesus teaching in sort of three parts on the law. And last week we looked on his fulfillment of the law, and that the law is not abolished, that the law is not just disappeared. Uh, as kingdom people, we, do, we don't just throw off the law, which, is, which would be called antinomianism. There's your word for the day. Uh, antinomianism is, is casting off the law and saying, I can live however I want. On the other hand, Jesus now is going to say that we're also not legalists. Remember, he said that your righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were expert legalists. So he says you don't throw off the law, but you also don't follow the law the way the legalists do, by the letter of the law and not the spirit. And so now he gets into the meat of it, and we're starting to talk about how Jesus wants his people to interpret the law, understand how the law works. And... Quite often when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you would break down the next six sections and you'd do a sermon on each of the six. And, and that would be great and that would be wonderful, but I am going to step back and get a little higher up and try and look at all six at once and see what God is teaching about all six of these very important areas of our Christian life and our interactions and interpersonal actions. And these are serious interpersonal actions that Jesus is going to talk about, Right? He's talking about murder, adultery, marriage, oath-keeping, debt, all of these things. And he's saying, this is how my people interact interpersonally according to God's law. But before I get there, I want to tell you a story about cows, okay? I'm not sure how many of you know this, but I grew up on a farm. The first 18 years of my life were spent in the country on a 140-plus acre farmland and forest, and for most of my life, our farm was cash crop. It was mostly beans, white beans, navy beans, soybeans, and, and wheat. Beans and wheat, a little bit of corn thrown in there. 
And when you're a cash crop farmer, you don't need fences. Your farm is just wide open fields without interruption, except for some tree windbreaks here and there. It's just open country when you're a cash crop farmer. But really early on in the farm, we also had some cows. And now cows, as you can imagine, are not the smartest of creatures, nor are they the most dangerous. They don't defend themselves well. They don't think very far beyond their belly, and if they encounter any danger, they're pretty much out of luck. So if you don't have fences, cows get into trouble. The one thing that cows do seem to have a particular intelligence for while they're in the pasture is finding the weak spot in the fence and pressing on it until they get out. And they're like Mensa Society geniuses when it comes to finding weak spots and getting through. And so a good part of any cattle farmer's time is always spent mending fences. You have to constantly go around your farm mending the fences that are meant to keep the cows. Now, when a cow finds a weak spot, they go through it, and they lead all the other cows after them into dangerous ground where they have no skills for protecting themselves or avoiding any disaster, and so then you have to spend the next several hours rounding them up and returning them to where they belong and where they can be kept alive and safe and healthy. Or if they've really wandered off, you're waiting for them to come home, hoping they've not been overtaken by stray dogs or wolves or some other disaster. And so the the thing is, farmers have to keep checking the fences that are built to protect the cattle, who don't know enough to take care of themselves, but they're absolute geniuses at finding a hole and escaping from the confines of the community where they're provided for and cared for, They're geniuses at escaping from the community where they are safe and healthy. And when you read the books of Moses and the prophets, and that's who Jesus said are not abolished, when you read the statutes and the ordinances of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it it starts to dawn on you that perhaps what God is in the process of doing is building and mending fences. He's he's setting posts and and he's hanging wire to protect the people that he has called to be his own and to be image bearers of his. God's laws are a witness to the painstaking attention that God gives to the details involved in day-to-day living in a community as people of God. It's not easy to be God's people and to live together in community in righteousness and holiness in the way that God intended for us to live, especially as we have to do that in our fallen nature after the fall in the garden. So God pays painstaking attention to the details of how we are meant to be image bearers of God and how we are meant to exhibit his righteousness in community together as his people, and that's what he's doing with his law. Living together as people of God in community in a new kingdom is not easy in our fallen nature. We are not naturally righteous or gracious or kind. We do not naturally think too far beyond our own immediate wants and needs. And that means living in community as a people of God is messy. A congregation consists of many people, and we all have different histories and talents and experiences and gifts and past injuries and cravings and desires and disappointments and blessings and losses and various levels of wisdom and foolishness, and all of these people are living together in close proximity. Now, I'm not saying Christians in churches are mentally defective like cows, But there is considerable evidence that we might be spiritually defective. With one exception, like cows. We have an absolute genius for finding whatever might serve as a loophole in the law 
and the scriptures and getting ourselves through that hole. If we can find a way through the fence that God has erected, we're great at finding it. And this is exactly what we see in the law. God, As God mends fences around the fallen human condition, he, he shows the level of care that must be given in situations that are very specific and particular. And this is where the law comes from. So beyond the Ten Commandments, which you looked at in your life groups last week, the law, or God as the farmer, has to keep mending fences all the time for us. And so as you go through the law and the prophets, He starts to answer questions through Moses. What if you kill a person, but you didn't mean to? Exodus 21.13. What if you get in a fight with your servant and you knock his tooth out? Exodus 21.27. What if you borrow a donkey and it gets injured or dies? Exodus 22.14. What's the penalty for a man who seduces a virgin? Exodus 22.16-17. How old must a newborn goat be before it can be offered as a sacrifice? Leviticus 22.26. What is your responsibility regarding your relatives who have fallen on hard times? Leviticus 25.35. If a man is jealous of his wife, though he has no evidence of her unfaithfulness, what is he supposed to do? Numbers 5.11-22. In a judicial case, if you can't decide whether it's manslaughter or murder, what do you do then? Deuteronomy 17, 8 to 13. Right? So God is going around trying to plug all the holes that the cows are finding in the fence. Well, I didn't murder, it was self-defense. Right? You know, well, I didn't steal his donkey, I borrowed his donkey, and it died. Ended up on my barbecue. I don't know how that happened. Right? Like... So God is going around in the law, mending fences all the time, because we are geniuses at finding holes and getting through it. And it goes on and on and on. As you read the Old Testament, the mending of the fence, the cows have to keep being fenced in for their protection and for their flourishing. And as you learned in your life groups last week, the law serves several purposes. And you looked at three, I think, purposes that the law fills. And we're looking at a couple more today. The fence reveals our desire to wander. That's one of the purposes. It shows us that we're cows that want to wander from the community where we're safe. We didn't even know we were heading into danger until we ran into the fence. It sets the boundaries that are healthy for us and where we image God best. But the fence also stirs up in us rebellion. We learned that too in your life group last week. It reveals that we either hate the fence or we ignore the fence or we try to find ways through the fence while pretending that it's still standing so the farmer doesn't notice we're actually living outside of the fence but we like to think that he's still going to feed us and protect us and bless us anyway even though we're secretly just outside the fence living the way we want to but we're pretending we're inside the fence because we read the law just the way we wanted to read it. And as followers of Jesus, there's no getting around the fact that we have to figure out what to do with the fence. As we heard last week, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we left off last week with Jesus teaching his disciples, his kingdom people, that we are not out from under the law. The law continues. In other words, his disciples are not antinomians. They cannot just dispense with the law. They're not rejectors of the law. Nor are we legalists who attempt to misuse the law to accomplish their own end or to appear as righteous even while they're outside the fence and acting unrighteous. And so the ironic critique that Jesus has for legalists is that legalists don't actually understand the law properly. And his critique for antinomians, those that would abandon the law, is that they don't actually understand grace. So those that claim to know the law, Jesus' Jesus's critique will be, you don't really know the law. 
And those who claim to be under grace, he will say, you don't really understand grace. And that's his critique. And so what he's going to show us now in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount here, in the illumination of his grace, is that the law is still in effect, but rightly interpreted and rightly illuminated, the laws are seen for what they really are. They are gracious commands that nurture and protect the people of God, while at the same time, those people are becoming image bearers of God to the world. And I'll show you in a little bit, I hope, that the blessing of God is in the obedience to his gracious commands. And Jesus does this by pulling out six important Old Testament laws that we're going to look at that define how God's people are meant to live in community together in the most difficult of all possible circumstances. He doesn't pick any easy ones. And he illuminates these six laws with new light from his grace to show how his kingdom people are meant to function so much differently than everyone else in the world. He says, you are my new kingdom people. You're under this law, and you're going to behave in a way that is so different from what the religious people think and from what the world thinks. It's going to stun them. It's astonishing how different you are going to be than everyone else. They have new attitudes, these kingdom people, his disciples. They have a new expression of the law that confounds the religious and the irreligious. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text because we're looking at Matthew 5, 21, all the way down to 47 or so. And so I'm not going to read the text. I'll have it up on the screen, and I'm going to address the text while it's on the screen just for the sake of time. And all of these six items are sort of prefaced by the idea of Jesus saying that you have heard it said, or in other words, you have been taught, or this is the way that you have understood things. And, and, and you've only understood them, therefore, in this most limited sense. But then he says, but I tell you, they are not limited or narrowly defined. They're actually far more encompassing than you, than you can imagine. And so here they are quickly, just the six, and then we'll talk about them a little more at the end. He says in 521, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother or whoever insults his brother, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire or is disqualified according to the law, would be the way to read that. And so Jesus says the law goes beyond just restraining violence to addressing the root cause of why we're violent in the first place. It's not enough just to grit your teeth and restrain from killing somebody. Jesus says that's not actually the real point. The real point is the hatred and the animosity and the anger that's at the root of murder. That's the real problem. And he says if you even hate your brother or your sister, if you even feel, you even hold resentment and hold them in contempt, he's saying you fool, if you're contemptuous of them, you are guilty just as if you were guilty of murder. So the law... Jesus says, for his people, is my people are going to be people who don't even hold each other in contempt. They don't just refrain from killing each other. They don't even hold each other in contempt. They don't even, they're not even angry with each other or at others. Now, it's interesting to note here that fool is actually Jesus' personal favorite accusation directed at other people. So we could ask if Jesus is breaking his own law here when he says, you fools, in Matthew 23, 17, in Luke 24, 25, And I'm going to let you guys untangle that in your life groups together. Um, But Jesus calls both his disciples and Pharisees fools at some point. And so maybe there's a hint there that he calls both disciples and Pharisees fools at some point of how the law goes deeper than just the letter. But you see, Jesus says here in this very difficult area of hate and anger, the law goes beyond just simply not acting, but how you feel. It's a new thing in your heart. 
Then in 527, he says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you even lust after another person, you break the law. And Jesus shocks everybody again. He says, you are disqualified according to the law, so it would be better to gouge out an eye or cut off a hand that will keep the law and avoid hell. And nobody actually did these things, let's be clear. There's no record of Jewish people cutting off hands or gouging out eyes in order to follow Jesus on these words. Jesus never expected them to do that, literally. He's making a point about the danger of the temptation. He's saying, cut off the temptation. But his point again is that the law goes beyond your physical restraint to the condition of your heart. He says, my kingdom people will have new heart attitudes. You remember he said our righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he said the problem with the Pharisees is that you're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotten and you're dirty. Clean the inside of the cup first and then the outside can be clean. And so Jesus is systematically making a point here about his people is this is how you're going to interact with each other. You're going to go beyond just not killing each other or not sleeping with the wrong person. You're actually not going to hate each other. You're not even going to objectify people in your heart. And then in 531, he says, whoever wants a divorce should give her a certificate and move on. In other words, you've heard it said that you can divorce easily. But I say it's not that easy. You cannot easily divorce your husband or wife and just begin another relationship and not be guilty according to the law. And what Jesus is referring to um, are two dominant lines of, of Jewish uh, thought in terms of divorce uh, that were taught by the rabbis, Hillel on one side and Shammai on the other. And Hillel being the more lenient, he felt that a man and taught that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any cause. And that's why uh, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees ask and phrase the question that way. They say, can a man divorce for any reason? Because that's what Rabbi Hillel taught. If She doesn't cook the way you like her to cook, or if she burns your dinner, then you can issue a certificate of divorce and you can get a new wife. That was the Hillel school of thought. Shammai felt like, no, it couldn't be for any reason. You had to have a really good reason to get a divorce. Jesus comes along and says, actually, they're both wrong. There is no reason to get a divorce except for one, and even that reason is because of the hardness of your heart, because you haven't been able to get over get to the level of grace and forgiveness that's required. Moses gave you an option for that one reason. But what he's saying here is that the covenant of marriage in my people goes beyond normal relationships, which which may break down over trivial offenses. In in, In other people, marriage is not a lasting covenant, but in my people, marriage is a lasting covenant. It's different than what you would expect in the world. So you can see here that Jesus has not picked the easy interpersonal relationship examples. He's picked the absolute hardest examples in human life to give as teaching moments for his, his disciples. And he goes on in 533, he says, You shall not swear falsely, but I say don't even make oaths. Just do what you say you will do. There isn't actually anything that you own that you could swear by. And the point being that when people said that they were going to do something or that they were going to follow through on a promise, they would swear by something in sort of the way of this is now collateral that I'm going to do. So they would say, I swear by my snowmobile that I'll do that. And if I don't do it, then you get the snowmobile. That was the idea. Well, what the Pharisees were doing is they were swearing all these oaths by things of the temple and they were, had all these different rules about, well, if, if you swear by the altar then you don't have to honor what you said. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, then you do have to honor it. If you swear by the gold in the temple, that's one thing. But if you swear by the temple, that's another thing. And they were starting to find all these holes in the fences that they could sneak through so they didn't have to actually honor their word. And Jesus says, 
Don't even swear oaths, people. You don't own any of it anyway. It's all God's, so you don't have any collateral to offer anyway. Jesus says, my people are just people. When they say yes, they mean yes. When they say no, they mean no, and they follow through. Jesus says, my kingdom people are people of integrity, and they raise the bar over the law. It's beyond the law to the spirit that inside they're people of integrity. We go beyond the contractual obligation into the realm of faithfulness and character. Then in 538, he says, you were taught, and you've heard it said, you were taught an eye for an eye. But I say, don't demand retribution at all. Rather, decline what you're owed and even offer good in response. He says, if you're, somebody takes your shirt, let them have your cloak too. If somebody asks you to carry this burden, carry it farther than re- be required. He says, be open-handed, even with people who would take advantage of you. The law was written to restrain injustice. The law refers to what a master owes a servant if the servant is injured and things like that. But it's not to be used as an excuse not to be forgiven or not to be gracious or not to be kind. In other words, Jesus says yet again in this area of interpersonal relationships among my people, my people are not going to demand of each other what is owed them. Well, you broke my tooth, so I get to break yours, right? Or, you know, you damaged my car, so you owe me this, or you know, you need this now and, you know, I'll give it to you, but you got to pay me back. Jesus says, no, my people don't interact with each other that way. That's not what the law is meant to be. When the law is illuminated by the grace of Jesus, it goes beyond. The law goes farther than just justice and fairness into the realms of grace and unfairness. You know what's unfair? That Christ died for our sins. That's unfair. And Jesus says, my people deal in realms of unfairness on the grace side of unfairness. It isn't fair that somebody borrows your car and wrecks it and then can't repay it. But you know what? As Jesus' people, we let that go. It isn't fair that people say mean things about us and destroy our reputation. That isn't fair. But as Jesus' people, we let God take care of our reputation in the community. We don't worry about that. We don't demand payback. Then he says, finally, 543, the first set of six things that he deals with the law. And and the first set of six that Jesus deals with here have to do with our interpersonal relationships with each other and with the world. He's going to do three more that we'll do next week that have to do with our relationship with God. uh, But we're just looking at the first six here. He says, you were taught, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies too and pray for them. This phrase, love your neighbor, and where that teaching comes from is Leviticus 19.18. But if you go back and you read Leviticus 19.18, you realize that it doesn't say anything there about hating your enemy. When people were taught, love your, enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the rabbis added that second part afterwards as sort of a logical conclusion. Well, if God tells us to love our neighbor, he must mean that we then hate our enemy. That's only logical. If we love our countrymen, then we must hate everyone else, right? But Jesus says, no, the law goes beyond more than just loving people who are similar to you or who agree with you or who are your friends. Jesus says, even Gentiles do that. Even sinners do that. Even the world acts that way. My kingdom people go beyond the legalists. They go beyond the law. They go beyond the antinomians. They go beyond the world. They love even their enemies. And so in every case here, Jesus takes a hard part of interpersonal relationships and he says, you need to go beyond what you read in the letter of the law and understand the law in the illumination of my grace. And in every single case, 
The people of God are to react in the image of God. They are to react with grace and with forgiveness and with gentleness and with kindness. And if the law is ever directing you to act in a way contrary to that, then you're not reading the law correctly. And so as he concludes this list of you have heard it said statements, Jesus really emphasized what all of they have to say. What he has to say about his kingdom people, what, what he's really been saying since the very start of his Sermon on the Mount, but in several different ways. This is what he's saying. He's saying, my disciples, my kingdom people, are going to be different than every other people who belong to other kingdoms. You're going to be different than the world, to the point that the world is going to persecute you. You're going to be so different to the world that you will be like light in darkness and like salt on the ground. But you are also going to be different than all the religious law keepers. My kingdom people keep the law. It isn't going away, but they will keep the law as it was intended to be a blessing to God's people and to the world and to make them image bearers of God as my people were always intended to be, as I created you to be my image bearers. He says, my disciples living in community together are going to be different than any other citizen of any other kingdom. They will act towards each other in such unexpected ways. It will shock people. People will say, how do you behave that way? It's not at all what we expected. Not only will my people not murder or do violence towards each other, they won't even nurture hateful thoughts. They won't even cultivate animosity. They won't even have angry attitudes towards others. Not only will they not be sexually immoral, they're not even going to objectify the opposite sex in their minds. They will not take marriage lightly or break any oath or covenant at all. They won't seek retribution even if they've been harmed and not expecting any return. Their stance towards other people, even their enemies, will always be one of offering compassion and grace and kindness. The stance of my people's heart to the world is always love. In summary, my people will love their enemy. The indication that my people are really my people is that they don't respond in these very difficult situations the way that they would naturally respond or the world would expect them to do. They react in shockingly unexpected ways because they've been made something new and something unexpected because my spirit is with them. And, and so Jesus' disciples, kingdom people, and that means us, we have to understand the law in this whole new light. That we are called to be image bearers of God and that, that God's word is not law in the legalistic sense. God's laws are gracious commandments that, are des- that describe the image of God as lived out in his people. All of these ways that, that Jesus asks us to respond are really the ways that God's heart responded to the world. And so we live out these commands, we obey these commands, not so that we get blessed. It's not like, okay, God, I've obeyed your command. Now I'm waiting for the blessing that I get the treat because I obeyed the command. What I want to press into here, and we're going to in just a minute, is that the obedience to the command is the blessing. The blessing comes from obedience. It is blessed. It is a blessed life to have love for your enemies. It is blessed to be committed to your marriage. It is blessed to forgive debt. It is blessed to follow these commands. Not you follow the command and then get a blessing, but the commandment itself is blessing. It is blessed to live in obedience before God and have a clean heart before God. That is blessing. So I want to unpack this idea that kingdom people recognize that the blessing of God is found in obedience to command. And to do that, I just want to go back and look at the law again from the Old Testament light. If you go all the way back to Genesis, we see God creating his people and giving them a command. 
He creates his people, and in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. This is how you image me and experience blessing. I've created you, and I've given you a command, and if you want to experience blessing and you want to image me as you are made in my image, then follow the command I've given. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you see? The blessing is in the command. The command is the blessing. This is how you image me. This is how blessing comes to you, by being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. Multiply, be fruitful, and rule, just as I do. But then notice, Satan comes along in Genesis, and he says his lies. He says, blessing doesn't come by obedience. He says, you're not really image bearers of God by obeying. What does Satan say? He says, you will be like God if you disobey, Genesis 3, 5. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the lie of Satan. That image bearing or being like God doesn't come by obedience, but by disobedience. Satan says, disobey God and you will be like God. God says, obey me and you will be like me. Satan's lie is the exact opposite. You want to be the image of God? You want to be like God? Then you should disobey him. Blessing comes from disobedience. That's always been Satan's lie. Satan says, find a hole in the fence. The good times are out here. Blessing comes if you get through the fence. And God said, no, the blessing is in the fence. The blessing is in obedience to the command. And when Adam and Eve took the bait, they ran right through the fence that God had built for them, and their image-bearing of God was shattered. And their lives were literally disintegrated from their knowledge of God. They were no longer who they were created to be. They were no longer image bearers. They were no longer followers of his command. They were no longer blessed in the way that God wanted to bless them. And they were filled with shame, and they were filled with regret, and they were filled with remorse. Have you ever been filled with shame and regret and remorse? Have you ever been filled with shame and regret and remorse because you followed God's commands? Or because you didn't follow them? Right? Because you didn't follow them. Because blessing is in obedience and shame and regret and remorse is in disobedience and that's when we shatter our purpose, which is to be image bearers of God. But God is always a redeemer. He's always a rebuilder, a restorer, and so he has a plan to bring his people into blessing and community with him again. And so if we look ahead to God expanding on his covenant or his laws or his commands with Abraham, in Genesis fifteen six, he says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, but Abraham's life was not perfect or blameless. God tells him in Genesis 17, he says, walk in my ways and be blameless. Literally, that's what he said. Just like he said to Adam and Eve, do this and you'll be blessed. He says, walk in my ways and be blameless. But Abraham couldn't do it. His trust in God, his faith in God was counted towards him as righteousness, but his life did not yet line up with that faith. Because at this point, mankind is still disintegrated from the fall. We are not perfect image bearers yet. But God tells Abraham, you will be a blessing to the nations, and I will bless you if you follow my commands. And then in Exodus, God brings the people out of Egypt, and God rescues them. And then after they are rescued, God gives them the commands again. God gives them an even more detailed law. He builds an even more obvious fence. He doesn't give them the law to save them. 
He's already rescued them out of Egypt. It's not obey my law and I will rescue you. He says, I have rescued you and made you my people. Now let me tell you how to dwell safely as my people, as my congregation, as my kingdom, and how you can become image bearers of me again to the world. I've saved you by grace. Now know that blessing comes from the commands. Live this way for your joy and as my image bearers or as my glory in the world. But of course, we know the same story with Adam and Eve as with Abraham was with the nation of Israel. We know that Israel, like cows, like us, were geniuses at finding holes in the fence and they ceased to bear image of God in the world and their blessing was removed because they disobeyed the command. And from there, God has to keep mending the fence. In Leviticus, as we looked at earlier, God says, here's all the different spheres of life where blessing will come from. If you obey all these new commands now, I'm giving you through Moses, and keep these commands so that my people will be image bearers and my glory and will be blessed. And these are good commands and your obedience in them is blessing. And God keeps saying the same thing over and over again to us dumb cows that blessing comes from obeying the commands the law is not your enemy the law is good the law is for you over and over again God reframes the same message this is how you are meant to be my image bearers and to flourish and to be safe and to be provided for and over and over and over again the antinomians those who want to get rid of the law entirely And the legalists find ways to break the fence and we get ourselves into dangerous ground. And Jesus comes along and says, there is a path you're going to walk. There is a way that you go. And you're not going to fall into the ditch on this side and destroy the law. And you're not going to fall into the ditch on this side and keep the law as a legalist. You're going to understand the law rightly. And you're going to live in the blessing of my command. If we're cultivating anger in our hearts, if we are nurturing dishonesty, if we are dwelling on our lusts and our cravings, if we refuse to honor our marriages, if we break covenants with each other and lie, if we fail to repay evil with good or to be generous to our adversaries, then we are outside the fence, is what Jesus is saying. You're not living in blessing when you do those things. You're living in resentment and regret and shame. We're not imaging God who created us to be his image bearers in the world. And we're living outside of his blessing. What blessing is it to our lives to cultivate hatred? How are we blessed if we treat our marriage covenants as disposable? What blessing is there in repaying evil with evil? God says, my commandments are your blessing. Follow my commandments. You don't obey them as I said and say, okay, God, I followed your commands. Now where's my blessing? God says, have you not been blessed by following my commands in the first place? Is not your heart good and right and clean and pure? Isn't that blessing? Are you not free from remorse and regret and resentment and grudges and animosity and chaos and conflict? Isn't that blessing? Isn't obedience to my command the blessing itself? And Jesus says at the end of his summary of his six examples, he says, if you only love those who love you, then how are you different than any sinner? If you are kind to only the people that like you, then you're acting the same as the pagans. He says, you need to love your enemies so that you may be children of God. See how Jesus brings it right back to image bearing? He says, you're supposed to love your enemies so that you're image bearers of God, so that you image God again the way you were meant to. 
Jesus said, God causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good in Matthew 5.45. In other words, he says, this is what your God is like. God does not withhold basic kindness from anyone. What they do with his kindness and what they do with his grace, which is the picture of rain falling, when it's offered to them, is up to them. But he doesn't withhold his grace and his kindness. Jesus concludes by saying, you therefore, my disciples, you therefore, my citizens of my kingdom, You are going to get back to basics. You need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or put another way, you need to start being image bearers of your father again. But just like Abraham, we trust God. We have faith in God. We have trust in Jesus Christ. And it's counted to us as righteousness, but our lives don't yet line up with our faith. So how do we read that last imperative? And I'm closing with this. How do we read that last imperative? Because there's so many shocking things that Jesus says here. We couldn't possibly cover them all. But he finishes with this one. Maybe the biggest shocker. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Remember, the blessing is in the command. So he's commanding. He's saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's blessing if you obey this command. But because Jesus has already front-loaded this list of commands by, seeing, by already saying, my people don't fulfill the law of God, I ultimately fulfill it, I think the best way of reading this in English is like this. When he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he means that that's our goal. We are trying to be image-bearers of God. We are trying to find blessing in obedience. But I think we can read it like this. Do things the way your dad does them. Do you see how dad does it? Do it like that. My disciples are perfect the way your heavenly father is perfect. Right? When we're nurturing our children, when we're teaching them to be image bearers of our family, we come alongside our children time and time again, and we say something just like that. We say, here's the way your life can go well. Listen to my command that you will be blessed that you will mature in ways that are good for you and bring glory to our family. Jesus says that to his children. He says, be perfect the way your father is perfect. Do you see how dad does things? Do it the way dad does it. Now, are we going to get it perfectly? No. But by the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ in us, I'll tell you the best place to start is to at least understand the law as Jesus intended the law. At least understand that God's gracious commands are meant to be a blessing to us. The law is not our enemy, it is our friend. The law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. We cannot fulfill the law, but Christ will. We don't have the power within us to obey it perfectly, but Jesus uses the law as a means to transform us again into the image bearers of God that he intended. And as we live together as a church, as we live together as a body of God's people, we must, this is where the rubber meets the road, as we sit here, 150 or 200 of us, we must set the stance of our hearts to be different than that of the world. We are children of God. We are disciples. We are members of his kingdom. We are not members of the world. We're citizens in a new kingdom with new kingdom attitudes. And we, when we set our hearts to bear the image of God in this way, both the religious and the irreligious will be amazed. They will be stunned that we can respond to each other and to the world in these most difficult circumstances of our life with grace and with compassion and with forgiveness. Now, is it easy? It is not easy because we are spiritual cattle who are always looking for ways to get through the fence. But the world will ask, they will wonder, Where does forgiveness like that come from? 
How is it possible that your marriage is that resilient? Why don't you take people to court and demand repayment? Where does your compassion for those people who have devastated your life come from? Why are you relentlessly seeking the good of people that you should hate? That's how the law brings blessing. That's how we become image bearers of God again in the world. That's what Jesus says his kingdom people are like. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what it teaches us. And Jesus says, as, as we go through this this week in our life groups, we're going to get shocked over and over and over again. Like, like if, this, if this sermon from Jesus offends us and shocks us and causes us to just throw up our hands, then it's having the exact right impact. Because Jesus says really hard things here. But he says, this is who my people are. This is how they treat each other. This is how they treat the world. This is how they're different. They are different from the heart out. And it is so miraculous, they won't even be able to understand it. The world certainly won't. Father, I pray, just as we sang before this sermon started, that we remember that it's by the wounds of your son that any of this is possible. It's by the Holy Spirit. It's by what he accomplished on the cross that we have any righteousness to live this transformed life. And so we pray that that would be true of us as we go forward from this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.